People are the most consequential and dangerous forces on Earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lett. Hello, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 26. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Dr. David Funder, a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of California, Riverside, to discuss personality judgment and how we understand others. David is widely regarded for his research on the accuracy of personality judgment, and the psychological nature of the situations people encounter, select, and create in daily life. He received his bachelor's degree in psychology from UC Berkeley and his PhD from Stanford University, and he's also the author of one of the most popular personality textbooks, The Personality Puzzle, which is currently in its eighth edition. So with that, David, is there anything else you would like the audience to know about you before we dive into the episode? Uh, maybe just a little bit. One is that I was actually a transfer student to uh, UC Berkeley. And before I went there, I went to American River Junior College, as it was called at the time, and then also Sacramento State College, as it was called at the time. And so I've kind of done the, the various institutes of higher education, and uh, they're more the same than different, actually, I've found. Um, I also have, uh, I should probably note that I have two daughters. And I'm married to someone who is absolutely not a psychologist, which is probably a very good thing. <laughs> well, I'll also add a round out that, that little bit there, David, about your uh, background in higher ed is that you also um, were at uh, Harvey Mudd College uh, as your first job, then also at Harvard and at the University of Illinois. So you've had a, a tour of the country and um, also a, a tour of higher ed institutions on, on sort of both sides as both a student and a faculty member, which I think is uh, is a really interesting perspective as well. Um, yeah, the other thing I've, that, been, uh-huh, I've, been a, I've been a student or faculty member at pretty much every kind of college you can think of, except a religious college, but uh, right. private, public, big, small, JC, and it's it's been a good experience. Well, and, and let me also add, you know, for, for our listeners that, um, you know, as Blake mentioned in, in the beginning, you know, David is, is really um, world renowned for his research on personality judgment, or that is how we come to know other people, how we come to make judgments about other people, uh, as well as some of the research he's been doing more recently on situations. And we'll be talking about that in today's episode. Uh, David also has, as Blake mentioned, um, well, he has one very popular book, but he has other books as well. Uh, one book on personality judgment, which I think we'll probably talk about some of uh, a little bit today, but also uh, his textbook on the, the personality puzzle, 
is uh, widely regarded as one of the best personality psychology textbooks. Um, it is very popular among undergraduate students, but it's also very readable uh, for people who are not uh, in a classroom or not uh, taking a, a course on personality psychology even. Um, in fact, I had uh, some friends uh, of ours were over here the other day and about a 12-year-old girl who was very, she's very interested in reading, went into, uh, <laughs> into my office and said, oh, can I read one of these books? And I said, sure why not there's a whole bunch sure. of psychology books there and she grabbed the personality puzzle off there and started actually sat down and started reading the book and uh, i sent her home with it with a, one of the uh well i don't think it was the eighth edition because i kind of still need to hold on to that one myself but i sent her home with one of the previous editions and said sure you can take this and read it for a while if you want so a very popular book um and 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 really well known in, in the field of psychology past arp president past spsp president these are major organizations uh, among uh, personality psychologists, and, and we're really happy to have David here with us today. Yeah, so David, I think the first question I have out of the gate, um, you know, it's actually before we even get into today's topic, it's kind of what got you interested in researching judgment in the first place? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And when, I, when you ponder these questions, you know, you, you come up with sort of a retrospective answer to looking back, you know, it, I put, you can put together a story that is not necessarily the way it looked going forward. Um, I think there's a cliche around in psych psychology that all of our research is me-search, that there's always some personal issue somewhere in the background. And I suspect that for mine, it's that I don't think that historically I've been a very good judge of personality. And I've kind of sort of wondered how to get better at that or, or what's going on with, with that. Um, and also... Um, I think anybody who goes into psychology at some point has just been interested in figuring people out. You know, that's kind of the seeds of becoming a, a future psychologist. Most people are interested in figuring each other out, but I think psychologists start, you know, you get more serious about it. You start thinking like, well, what really can we do? And I stumbled into being a psychology major and uh, I think a turning point, probably a turning point in my life was when I took a undergraduate seminar from Jack Block who was not the most warm and fuzzy seminar leader you could ever be introduced to as a, as an undergraduate, but really a fascinating guy and was really my first window into something just beyond taking a, just a psych class, you know, to get a window into what psychologists really argue about and talk about with each other. And his text for that seminar was Walter Michelle's book that basically argued that personality didn't exist. And he kind of led us through it. And, uh, Obviously, well, your listeners probably don't know, but that Block was very opposed to that point of view. And that was my introduction to sort of serious psychology. And there was a point at which I looked at what Jack Block was doing and I had been a, a grocer, you know, but my only job I'd really had until then was in the grocery business. And uh, I looked at him one day and I realized, gosh, you know, he's getting paid to do this. This is what he does for a living. That sounds like a pretty cool job. So, I, you know, th that was sort of my career choice, but getting into personality judgment, it was this idea that there's people out there really to really argue, and they're st still around, that personality is not important, that personality traits don't exist, that people are really the same, that it's all the situation. And maybe I was just influenced by Block, but it also struck me as common sense that that was just nonsense. And an implication from that was, if this point of view that personality isn't important is correct, 
it means we're all wrong. You know, we, we, we talk about each other's personalities and our own personalities all the time, and we must be wrong. And it was just a couple of years later that I discovered that, in fact, there's this thing called the fundamental attribution error, which, which is also still around in social psychology. The idea that, yep, we're wrong pretty much all the time, fundamentally. Personality doesn't exist. And I just thought that was nonsense. Um, and then I also, at some later point, came across, again, early in my career, Kahneman and Tversky, who were just the most distinguished, famous, hottest people in psychology at the time, and to some degree still are, you know, which is, and that was people are fundamentally erroneous in their basic cognitive processes in many ways. And that spun off a whole industry in both cognitive and social psychology of documenting how many errors people make. Error, 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 error. And it just rubbed me the wrong way. So maybe I'm just a contrary, but those just rubbed me the wrong way. And it, I also thought that when I started looking into what these demonstrations of error are, an awful lot of them, and arguably even all of them, have the same property as a magic trick, a stage magic trick. And how do magicians fool you on the stage when they're doing their magic act? One technique above all, misdirection, get you to look at the wrong thing. And that's what a lot of these studies are deliberately designed to do, is to get you to look at the wrong stimulus, to exaggerate something. They're, they're designed to trick you, and sure enough, people get tricked. So at that point, you start asking, well, then how do you research how people make judgments or how well they make judgments without just accumulating the errors people make when you try to fool them? And that's where you back way off and you say, well, what do people actually do? Well, they judge each other. And maybe we can start trying to study that by having people make judgments of each other and start to calibrate whether they're right, when they're right, what are the variables that affect when they're right. And that's kind of how my research program developed. And again, that's a retrospective account because at the time, that's never how it feels going forward. But looking back, that's how it kind of came together. Yeah, I think there's there's two really interesting things I, I want to... Um sort of expand on there for, for our listeners. One is, just, I would just want to give an example of these kind of cognitive, um, you know, errors that, that, that would come up. And, and to your point about them being sort of like a, a, a magician's sort of trick, um, one really common one that maybe, maybe in fact, too many people are familiar with, we could test it on Blake and see, we'll see if Blake knows the answer. <laughs> so Blake, if a bat and ball cost at $1 and 10 cents, how, and the, and the bat costs one dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Oh, I've seen this before. Um, <laughs> so now you're hesitating. That's yeah. not fair. You're supposed to answer immediately. What was the uh, first number that popped into your head? Wait, say say it one more time. If a bat and a ball cost a dollar ten cents, and the bat costs one dollar more than the ball, how much does the ball cost? Ten cents. Yeah, exactly. That's the first number that pops in everybody's head and everybody goes, ha ha ha, you're, you've made an error. And it's, it's as to, to David's point, it's much the way a magician would do a trick because what it relies on is that typically when somebody, if you go up to the counter and you're purchasing a bat and a ball, you would typically be thinking about how do I add these things together? Well, a bat costs a dollar, the ball costs 10 cents, the total's a dollar 10. But the way I've asked the question is kind of tricky. I've said the bat costs one dollar more than the ball, so in which case that means that the, the bat is actually a dollar five cents and the ball is five cents. And almost everybody gets it wrong immediately. In fact, I think in the original studies, if I remember uh, about this, there was all these, uh, these were done on really smart students at like Harvard and MIT 
And um, the people who got it right, they could see the eraser marks on the pages where they had written 10 cents <laughs> and then they had gone back and checked the math and went, oh no, that's not right. Um, and so, yeah, so, so to David's point, this is sort of a, uh, sort of like a, a parlor trick in some sense. Um, but that, that does lead to this broader question. This was the second point I, I wanted to bring in here, which is that, you know, our, uh, the, fundamentally, right? If personality doesn't exist, and this is, I think, what David was getting at, um, that it means that these judgments we make about people, which we make all day long, and we have no choice, right? We we meet people, we see people, we we always make judgments about them automatically. Um, and what all of this other research would be telling us is that those judgments are false; they're erroneous. You're just making them up. And I think that's that's a really interesting place for this for this research to kick off. It says, is that really true? Are the judgments we make about other people wrong? Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> what, 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 one way I like to do it, this is a, a sort of a quick and dirty way to, to answer the question, but, but as close as, as any other quick summary, is that if you do a correlation between uh, a judgment somebody makes of somebody and some criterion for accuracy, which could be another judgment or self-judgment, some kind of other thing. Uh, you know, it, it's it, generally, if you've got good data, it, it, the correlation's around 0.30, and you do this thing called the biserial effect size display or binomial effect size display. I always get, I always get mixed up, which it is, the BESD. Um, it turns out to, to translate to saying you're right about two times out of three. Mm-hmm. So when people ask me how accurate are people, I will, my quick answer is you're probably right two times out of three, but don't get too smug because that means you're wrong one time out of three, right. <laughs> which, which is a lot of wrong, right? So it, it, there's clearly something there, but there's also clearly a lot of, of room for error as well. But, but I think that's where some of this research that you've done, David, really gets to a fundamental question, which is goes back to the, to the book you're referring to about whether or not personality exists, whether or not personality is a thing. And the, I think the point there is, wait a minute, if, if people agree about what somebody's like or those judgments about what somebody's like has actual concept or, or actually predicts some outcome, right, that people care about, um, you know, uh, does, uh, doesn't that suggest that there must be something about personality, that it's not just in our heads, that there must be something real about that person? Right, exactly. Personality is extremely consequential. And there's all, you know, the most dramatic example that, that I think psychology has come up with so far is the robust fact that people high on the trait of conscientiousness live longer. You know, and, and if that's not an outcome people care about, I don't know what is, right? Um, conscientiousness has a lot of other far-reaching consequences as well. Of course, career success being a, uh, another huge one. And that's just, you know, that's a maybe the most robust finding in psychology is, is the far-reaching consequences of conscientiousness and its related constructs. It, it, if, if, you know, sometimes people say personality psychology doesn't have any counterintuitive results, well, I don't know that that was, it's counterintuitive. It makes sense when you hear it. But I don't think when the big five was being put together and conscientiousness was kind of emerging as, as a trait that was measured, you know, through uh, accidentally for a while through honesty tests and things were kind of accidentally tapping into that. I don't think anybody really anticipated that it, the consequences would be as far reaching as they turned out to be. Well, if conscientiousness 
is the predictor of, or potentially predicts how long someone's going to live, then I'm just going to have to rely on good genes. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's all I have to go on at this point. But I, I do sometimes ask my students a, a little question like, uh, think back to your, your bedroom this morning. Uh, is your bed made? No. If your bed, oh, sorry, so I'm sorry to hear that, Blake, because if you if you made your bed this morning, you'll live longer. I'm not saying it's a causal relationship, but Sam Gosling showed that uh, in a really cute study that he did a, a really cute study where he had, uh, you know, undergraduates, uh, participants come to his lab and he'd say, is it okay with us if we send one of my, one of our RAs back to your dorm room and just take a picture? And they, they would say yes. And then it turned out, you know, that the ones who scored higher in conscientiousness were more likely to have their beds made than the ones who scored uh, low on it. So, well, well, David, I like to think that, you know, I'm looking at this from an efficiency standpoint, because if I make my bed, then I have to unmake it before I get back into it this evening. So by not making it, I'm actually, um, I feel like I'm getting better use out of my time. So we're just, we're just going to, We'll look at it through that lens. Okay, yeah. Well, we, <laughs> Hopefully my mom's not listening. If either. that makes you feel better. <laughs> but uh, uh, So David, there are, you know, broadly speaking, two kinds of personality assessment. There's the formal assessment, you know, kind of like the ones that we use at Hogan, but also these informal personality assessment in, in the form of judgments we make about others. In, in what ways are these similar and different from each other? And what can we learn from one form or the other? Yeah, I've always really gotten a lot of benefit and almost, almost from the very beginning of using both, you know, in the same study. Um, I like to have people judge each other, you know, judge their roommate, judge their friends, judge their acquaintances. And then also to the extent I can get one or another formal test, uh, you know, the BFI two or, or, you know, there's a, of course a million different ones. I, we use the Q sort um, to capture, well, actually I use the Q sort usually as an, as a tool to get uh, informal judgments captured. Um, it's a, the Q sort is a, an instrument with a hundred items that you sort into a distribution from high to low. You basically rank order them. And it says things like, is a genuinely dependent and responsible person has a wide range of interests. Um, uh, and, and so there's 98 more of those. Um, and I, I use that instrument because if when you describe yourself um, with the Q sort, you have an opinion on all hundred items, I discover. But then the second thing it's interesting to do is say, okay, now describe somebody you know really, really well, and you'll realize that some of the items you don't know, which to me tells me how comprehensive that instrument is, that you by the time you've done one, you really do have this feeling that I've said everything I know about this person, which is one reason why I really like it. But you take those kind of descriptions and you dovetail them with, with uh, validated uh, formal instruments and you see you know, good convergence uh, by and large. In fact, almost always good convergence be between uh, peer reports, for example, and, and even self reports. And then the, then the kinds of scores you get off of instruments like the HPI and, and all of the you know, more formally validated tests. And I think there's an interesting also fact or thought about the relationship between those two methods, which is a lot of times in real life, you have one, but not the other. You know, you, if you're trying to screen a bunch of employees, obviously you don't have a bunch of, of peer judgments of them and they would probably be contaminated anyway, because they would be 
you know, contaminated by the idea that, well, this person's going to get a job if I describe them this way and not if I don't and so forth. So, you know, if you, in an employment context, in a screening context, maybe in a clinical context sometimes, you only have the formal one. But in daily life, um, we only have the informal one. So it's, it's kind of, it's reassuring to know that you can kind of do it either way. Um, I did a study, one of my favorite, um, it, it was a study I got so excited about that I actually wrote myself a press release, which the university put out. And I thought it would make a big splash. And it's kind of my favorite study that's been completely ignored by the wider psychological community. Ryan, I don't even know if you know about it. Um, I'm trying to remember if it was before or after your time. It was after you, you were, we were working together. But Seth Wagerman was a graduate student here at the time, and he was he's a lead author on it. What we had done is some years earlier, we had done one of our big accuracy projects where, where we had asked our accuracy research projects where we had gotten a couple of hundred undergraduates into our lab, and we had gotten them to help us recruit for each of them to peers, basically roommates and friends and teammates and stuff. So we, so we had two peer judgments of each of our 200 or so, 250 or so participants on, on the QSort, basically, which is, again, very, very wide ranging. And Seth was poking around one day and realized that the consent form everybody had signed said that we could get their academic records. And I didn't remember we had put that in the consent form, but we did. So we were able to go to the registrar and get some really interesting data. We were able to get from the registrar their high school GPA, their their freshman GPA here at UC Riverside, and then their final cumulative GPA when they graduated or left, and almost all of them happily graduated. And this was all data that had been gathered years earlier. So they not only were just freshmen, they you know graduated and moved on. So we had kind of interesting criterion data. And what we did was we predicted, you know, post-dicted, but predicted predicted freshman grades from two sources, uh, high school grades, actually three sources, high school grades, the SAT, and peers' ratings of conscientiousness. And it turned out the three for predicting uh, freshman grades are about tied. So SAT, the high school grades actually do a bit better than the SAT does at predicting freshman grades. Um, And conscientiousness did about as well as high school grades. So SAT was slightly behind. And you can say, well, that's criterion contamination because uh, all of our raters knew that these were conscientious kids and that's probably, and they were getting good grades and maybe that's why they rated them high in conscientiousness. But the kicker finding for me was when you were predicting cumulative GPA at the end of four or five years of college and not freshman GPA, suddenly the conscientiousness judgments done back when they were freshmen are much better predictors than either of the other two. So, so personality matters more than your than your SAT score, basically, in predicting overall success in college. And what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting about that is when you look at studies that validate the SAT and try to test its predictive validity, they always validate them against freshman grades, mm-hmm. not, not cumulative grades. But as you go over the years of college, the predictive ability of the SAT goes down and the predictive validity of conscientious ratings goes up. Yeah, so, I... I... I do remember that study, David. Um, oh God, it might have been published. I think I might have actually been for for the for our audience who doesn't know. I was a student. I was one of David's students, and I worked in his lab. Um, 
but it may have been while I was in the lab when uh, when that study was published. But but yeah, of course, I remember that. Uh, yeah, I, I do remember that study. And I think to me that that fascinating finding there, I and this is something that comes up in, in the work that we do at Hogan a lot people will ask about behavioral tasks or behavioral tests, right? So Mm -hmm. um, if I, and if you think of high school GPA as sort of like, well, this was the circumscribed behavioral task that you did. And and it does a good job of predicting a very similar circumscribed behavioral task. Right. But as you get further and further away from that circumstance, as those, as the situation that you're in actually changes more and more, what becomes much more predictive is is those personality judgments, that personality assessment, because I, in my view, it's because it just covers, it's a, it's a broader base predictor. It, it takes into account those circumstantial, it, it sort of discounts the circumstantial features and says, no, what's really core that goes mm-hmm. beyond those circumstances. Right. It goes beyond test taking, right? Yes. Because, you know, the, if, if grades are based on tests and the SAT is a test, then guess what? Test taking predicts test taking. Right? Yeah. But usually, but f- hopefully later in a, at a, in a good college, right, as your, as your career progresses through academia, it becomes less and less about test taking and more and more about synthetic thinking, writing, doing projects, doing things that are you know, beyond just the next midterm. And of course, employment context, test taking is not the job of most people, right? Right. It's, it's a much broader criterion you're shooting for. Yes, and the criteria in, in employment settings, I think, is, and it's it's one that's used a lot. I, I presume you guys use it at, at your company. Is supervisor uh, ratings a year mm-hmm. into the job? Which yes, yeah, and, and and the reason I really like that a lot is you could say, well, that's subjective too, right? Right. But, but when you think of the plight of an employer trying to decide whether to hire somebody. That's what they want to know, right? They right. want to know a year from now, if I hire this person a year from now, am I going to be glad I did it or am I going to rue the day? Right. And if you could just say, this is what you'll think in a year, man, that's that's what you want, right? So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes we call those quality of hire studies where we say, yeah, a year later, was this a quality hire or not? Yeah. Um, it just is a really simple judgment like that often works really well. And, and to your point, um, or to, or to this broader point, the the personality assessments predict that really well. What doesn't predict it as well is some of these, um, you know, pre-job screening tests, task-based tests, um, or or even there's even sort of like behavioral kinds of personality tests where like, okay, we'll have you engage in this behavior and use that to judge whether or not you're impulsive or something like that. Right. Um, those just don't predict that kind of long-term quality of hire thing as well. They tend to predict some short-term in this particular circumstance, okay, but they don't do nearly as well as predicting that broader criteria. Right, right. Um, it, uh, sort of related, uh, a former student who was, I think even before you, Melinda Blackman, who's uh, mm-hmm. on the faculty at Cal State Fullerton, did a study some years ago comparing structured and unstructured interviews and of course, unstructured interviews have kind of a bad reputation, mm-hmm. but but she found something similar that a structured interview is better at predicting specific criteria. You know, ah. if, if you want to know something narrow about a person, you ask about that exactly, you build in the structured interview and you get good validity for that. But if you want to know broader things like sort of broader, what um, I remember the name of the guy that uh, coined the phrase citizenship behavior, but if you want to uh-huh. know 
if they're, you know, just a good person on the job, a good person to have around, somebody who improves the climate from being there, helps out people when they're having trouble, makes customers happy, you know, that kind of much softer skill, harder to measure, that that's actually better predicted by unstructured interview. Oh, that's really interesting. And it makes sense, right? Because an unstructured interview is is a broader, again, yep. narrow, narrow predictors predict narrow criteria, broader predictors predict broader criteria. Oh, wow. That's actually, I mean, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, we talk about structured versus unstructured interviews a lot, but in also saying, you know, structured interviews tend to be, you know, maybe a little bit better for what you're looking for. But at the same time, it's kind of interesting to see that there is some value in an unstructured interview um, based on exactly what you just said. Yeah, because it's because it's basically what we it's, it's an analog to what we've done in our lab sometimes where we bring in strangers and tell them to get acquainted. And, and that's an unstructured interview in a sense, right? You just, you just chat and people can do pretty well after they've chatted just for a few minutes, they can actually come up with personality judgments that are pretty good. Um, we did a study um, where we actually had people, uh, they actually watched an interaction, but they, they got to watch for anywhere between five minutes and 30 minutes. And even at five minutes, their judgments, uh, dovetailed pretty well, reasonably well, surprisingly well, perhaps with people's self-judgments, but after a half an hour, they're really pretty good. So we thought it's just, even over that span of time, you could pick up a lot of information about a person. Okay. So, so David, this leads, I think very well into our next question, which I'm going to actually put this in two parts. Uh, The first is, you know, how do people make judgments about others in practice? That's, that's part one, but part two is, are people any good at judging others? Yeah. Well, again, I, I, I think they are, but let me go through the process. Um, I, I came, this is a model that I call the realistic accuracy model, but it has four stages that have the initials R, A, D, and U. And an undergraduate years later said to me, how come you didn't call it Radu? And I said, where were you when I needed you? <laughs> because I think actually that's a better that's a better term for it. So the, the four stages, um, I, I actually came up with this model. It's actually very closely related to Brunswick's lens model for people who are into that sort of old history of cognitive psychology. It's it's very par- parallel to that. Um, I had a uh, a grant reviewer who actually did something helpful once. They were turning down my grant because they didn't have any theory. And uh, but they put in a little comment saying, I think you do have a theory. You're just not putting it into your grant proposal. So I thought, do I have a theory? And then I realized I kind of did. So here's here's how to answer Blake's question. Uh, here's, I think, how personality judgment works when it's accurate. So it's it's the pathway to making an accurate judgment. It's not what people do necessarily. It's what they have to do if they're going to be accurate. OK. So relevance is the first stage. So the person that you're trying to make a judgment of has to do something relevant, right? If they just sit there and don't move, well, maybe you judge them as catatonic, but but you're not going to learn much about a person who doesn't do much, who doesn't say much, who doesn't uh, interact or, or emit many behaviors. Um, so that's that's the first stage. They have to do something. The second stage is, is availability, the A. It has to be available to you. You have to be there. You know, so if somebody's doing stuff, you have to share the context with them. You have to be present um, in order to uh, see it. Uh, D is detection. You have to notice it. You have to see it. You have to hear it. 
you have to pay attention to it. And then the U is utilization. Now that you have this information, you have to uh, interpret it correctly. And what's critical about this model is, is these are not sufficient stages. They are necessary stages. So if you lose any of them, you're basically accuracy is doomed. So if the person you're trying to judge never does anything relevant, you're, you can't judge them, period. It's impossible. If they do it, but you're not there, you're not, you don't share the context, then again, game over. If they do it and you're there, but you don't notice, game over. If, you, if they do it, you're there, you detect it, but you misinterpret it, again, game over. So you do that, you realize personal judgment's hard. It's hard. It's amazing we ever do it at all. So that's one of the many things that irritates me about the whole error-based approach to studying personality judgment is that, that the big judgment, the big conclusion from the error research is, hey, guess what? People aren't perfect. Well, newsflash, you know, <laughs> we, we kind of already knew that people weren't perfect. And yet that's what, I mean, just as an aside, Kahneman Tversky, well, uh, Tversky passed sadly, but, but Kahneman won the Nobel Prize. But he won it in economics, not in psychology. There is no Nobel Prize in psychology. Nonetheless, he didn't. He wouldn't have deserved a Nobel Prize in psychology, but he did deserve it in economics because so much of economics assumes perfect judgment, and he showed it what that's not true. So that was revolutionary for economics. For a psychologist, being told people aren't perfect is not very <laughs> exciting news. Right? We we only an, only an, only an economist is surprised by that finding. Uh, psychologists are not surprised by that uh, in the least little bit. So, you know, personality judgment's hard. And I think the, the news ought to be, it's amazing people can do it at all. Not that they're, per not, that they're not perfect, that you have to get over all of those uh, stages successfully in order to have a better judgment, an accurate judgment. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the points you made there um, is it's also worth... Uh, sort of elucidating for our audience that you know, it really depends on what particular characteristic you're judging. So right. for example, you said, well, if the person sits there and does nothing, well, that actually might be relevant for a trait like um, extroversion, right? Yeah, whereas, good point. whereas for other, for other personality characteristics, you go, well, that, that doesn't, I, I haven't, that gives me no information. Right. And so what, what counts as relevant might depend on what thing in particular you're judging as well. Right. So, David, my next question is, is it possible for someone to improve the accuracy of how they judge others? I think so. And I think this model is actually helpful for that. So the, the, the model gives you, the, the Radu model, gives you four different places where you can look to try to improve the accuracy of the judgments you make. So let's start with the relevance one. Again, if somebody doesn't do something relevant to what you're trying to judge, uh, nothing's, you know, you're, you're kind of stymied at the beginning. And I like to think, you know, example is um, the, uh, the touchy person, you know, people who are considered touchy. What, what do we mean when we say somebody's touchy? Well, we, we mean they're easily angered. They'll, you say the least little thing wrong and they'll, they might go off on you, right? What do we do around people like that? We're not ourselves, are we? Right? We, we pull in, we try to avoid giving offense. We try to do it, do, avoid doing anything that might set the person off. Well, what kind of judge is the touchy person going to be then? Surrounded by people who are busy inhibiting their behavior and trying to not set them off. They're going to get mis misleading uh, 
impression. On the other hand, if you're the kind of person who makes people relax, who helps them relax, around whom they feel unthreatened, they feel like they can be themselves, they can be authentic, they can take off the masks that we so often wear, if, if you can cultivate that skill to be somebody who's kind of easy to be around, I think you're going to see more authentic behavior from the people you interact with, and you're going to become a better judge. I think there's a really important implication right there for management, right? That, that the manager whose style is scaring their employees to death um, isn't going to see authentic behavior from their employees. They're not going to really know who's who and what's going on because they've inhibited behavior, the, the clues that they could use at the relevant stage. Um, availability is, is a, I'll, I'll give one more example of relevance. Uh, I had a graduate student, uh, not Ryan, <laughs> a long time ago who had a uh, almost alarmingly successful dating life. And uh, he was uh, had very strong opinions about what a good first date was. And he said, a bad first, bad place to go for his first date is to go to the movies. Because what you do is you sit there in the dark for two hours, staring straight ahead and, and, and not talking, because if you do, people will go, shh. So he thought a perfect first date was to go on a hike because it was a much freer situation, a, a looser situation, what, what we call in psychology weak situation, which just means there's a lot of parameters that people could vary their behavior on. You're going to see a lot more relevant behavior in that kind of situation than, than one that's more constrained. So that's just relevance alone. You know, get, uh, make people feel like they can be themselves and see them in situations where they can be themselves because there's fewer rules. Availability is just hang around the person a lot. You know, there is a thing called the acquaintance effect. There was actually a minor debate in the literature at one point, actually between me and David Kenny, who's a colleague I respect very much, but he actually published at one point that there was no such thing as an acquaintanceship effect, that you didn't get to know people better by knowing them longer. And I thought, oh, I'll take the other side of that bet <laughs> <laughs> and managed to get a couple of publications that would never have been possible had Kenny not helped me out by arguing the other side. Um, knowing people longer, yes, you know them better. So that's that's an easy one for availability. There's other nuances there. Detection. I think detection is actually another one that's uh, we, we could be a little more uh, aware of that I think the main reason we don't detect the clues that people are giving who are right in front of us, even people we want to know about, is that we're too busy monitoring our own self-presentation to pay attention to what the person is doing right in front of us. That We're, we're staring at our phones. We're staring, or we're staring at our phones. <laughs> we're staring at our phones. That's right. Staring at our phones or plotting what I'm going to say back. Right. right. Rather than listening to what you're saying, I'm plotting what I'm going to say next rather than listening to what you're actually saying. So the classic good listener, you know, that, that's a that's a cliche, but I think it's a very apt one. Um, just be a good listener, you know, pay attention, be in the moment, actually look at the person, pay attention to the person, get get over yourself. And yeah, Ryan, you're right. Put the phone down and uh, and see what's in front of you. Uh, Utilization is the last stage. It's the one that I actually find the least interesting of the stages, um, be, in part because the entire field of social cognition focuses on that stage and that stage only. So I will just leave that to others to study. But obviously there are memory issues there at utilization, you know, that don't overweight salient but uninformative events. Um, try not to be misled by stereotypes you might have about the person, you know, sexism, racism, that kind of thing. That's at, at the utilization stage. You might have to, it's probably good to try to 
consciously correct for whatever biases you might uh, be aware of that you that you might possibly have. Um, and you put those together, and I think you can become a better judge. Well, I, I think there's some really interesting things that that tie in with this model, with some things that we've been talking about here at Hogan for a number of years, which which is on the topic of judgment or sort of how do people make decisions in general, not just personality judgment, mm-hmm. but uh, related to at the same time, um, just getting better at making those decisions. And one of the things we've talked about in this area is humility, which is mm. the ability to sort of um, you know learn from your mistakes um, mm-hmm. to uh, be receptive to feedback. And, and the example you gave with this, you know, the boss that everybody sort of walks on eggshells around, or, you know, they, they won't really tell the, the truth, right? If they won't really mm-hmm. tell the boss the truth, they can never really get that information. They can never get that feedback. And they're never really going to improve as a judge or even a decision maker in the business because they're not getting accurate information. They're not getting the right kind of feedback that they need. And it's be- mm-hmm. in part because of their behavior. So uh, yeah, yeah, I think you're right, David, that there's a whole lot that the judge can do in terms of their own behavior and their own thought process to, to be better at this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So David, our, our regular listeners, they, they're pretty well aware that personality is related to the things that we do think and feel all the time, or at least those listeners who have been uh, you know, paying attention or, or listening to our podcast for the past year. Uh-huh. But more recently, you've actually been looking at how the situations we are in influence us as well. What got you started doing that and what kind of insights have you found? Yeah, well, it, it goes back to actually my uh, uh, dissertation work and first published study with, with my own graduate advisor, Daryl Bem, was on situations, in fact. And the advice I got way back when, starting as a, as a my starting off my own career, is whatever you do in the early part of your career, don't do what your advisor did because they'll, they'll attribute it all to your advisor and not to you. So I stayed away from the topic for the next 30 years and, and studied accuracy of personality judgment uh, instead. But it was also, so that was part of it. Uh, I'm circling back. Another part of it was this, this isn't something people in psychology say very often, but I actually figured my research on the accuracy of personality judgment was done. You know, that, that I had actually answered the questions I was curious about coming in um, to my satisfaction. I, I still would like maybe to know if there's training you could do to make people a better judge beyond the things I just said. But but really, I was kind of, in a way, casting around for another topic. You know, I was trying to, you know, that next grant proposal, what was it going to be about? And I couldn't quite see myself doing another one on, on accuracy. And then I realized, you know, there's this wide open field of situational assessment that psychologists, again, especially social psychologists, have been, and Walter Michel, you know, the, the original critic of personality psychology, and, and Lee Ross, the guy who coined the phrase the fundamental attribution error, kept saying, it's a situation that matters. It's a situation that matters. It's a situation that matters. And then you just go, okay, let's measure the situation then. And they never did that, right? They would some, sometimes manipulate little aspects of a situation in an experiment, but an overall conception of what is this situation, it just, it just didn't exist in, in social psychology. And then I found that there was a little tiny literature on situation assessment, but it was people were trying to come up with the factors that describe situations, and then they would kind of dust their hands off and say, okay, I'm done. And I'm just thinking, no, that's not when you're done. That's when you start, right? When, when you get a measurement tool 
or a, or a measurement, a way of, of conceptualizing or measuring something, that gives you a place to begin. So I, it dawned on me one day, you know, it was like a blinding lips of the obvious. I went, maybe what we need here is a QSART of all things. So that's what I came up with, uh, with help of Ryan and actually many other people to come up with the uh, behavioral, the situational, there's a behavioral QSART too, but with, with the situational QSART that tries to describe uh, the current incarnation has, I believe, 86 items. And it says things like a, an authority figure is present, uh, religion matters in the situation, music matters in the situation, situation is noisy. It's a very wide ranging uh, set of items. But again, the, the beauty of a QSort technique is you don't rate them present or absent or yes or no. You rate them in terms of their salience for describing that particular situation. So, for example, a uh, member of the opposites, people of the opposite sex are present. Well, that's true in a lot of situations, but sometimes that matters and sometimes that's irrelevant. Right. Sometimes it's the most important aspect of the situation. And sometimes it's clearly, yeah, people of both sexes are here, but it, it just doesn't matter. So so it's a it's a way to just to describe the overall situation. And we've done a lot of stuff. And Ryan has also done a lot of stuff with that and related tools to try to conceptualize what situations are and basically do what social psychology should have done a long time ago, which is to take situations seriously enough to that there's something we should try to measure. And then, of course, see what we can do with those measurements. Yeah, it's a really uh, it's a really funny situation, and, and to use the phrase, uh, the setup was because, I, I mean, I once asked the social psychologist, I said, well, when you talk about situations being important and you say, well, the situation matters, what is it specifically you mean by the situation? And this person said, all of it. <laughs> okay. Well, okay, that's that doesn't really help much from a yeah. scientific standpoint. What what are the actual things that are going on? Mm -hmm. um, and it was just that, and that. But it was, was what's funny about it was that did seem to be the approach, right? Was that it's just this all encompassing thing that nobody can really, um, you know, uh, pinpoint or capture. Yeah, or to the extent that it was specified at all, it was specified incredibly narrowly. It would be the difference between my experimental and my control condition. Right. You know, right. so so whatever. And, and at one point, I thought, what, early on when I started thinking again about situations, I thought, you know, maybe what I could do is mine the social psychological literature and say, well, maybe in all that experimental work, there's an implicit theory of situations there. You know, look at everything that's ever been manipulated. And I pretty quickly d decided that that was a dead end because things aren't manipulated because they're important. They're, they're manipulated because they can be manipulated and or they're, they ostensibly speak to some kind of theoretical question that psychologists had in mind. But they're not, there's no attempt in, in that literature of situational manipulation to, if that's what you want to call experimental social psychology, there's no attempt to zero in on what the most important aspects of situations are uh, at all. So that's why we kind of had to start all over. Uh, my renewed starting place was the personality cue sort actually so i went through the items of the personality cue sort and tried to come up with what what's a situational aspect where this aspect of personality might uh, come out so try to think of an example uh somebody's you know if, if somebody's fearful as a trait the, then the a situational uh, variable would be a potential threat is present 
right? And because somebody who's fearful, but there's no potential threat, you won't know that they're fearful. It, it's going to be in the presence of that situational attribute that's that you'll discover how fearful the person is. And there's, you know, you can do that with pretty much any trait you can think of, or, of what are the situations that where you would see it and where you wouldn't see it. Kind of what you were saying at the beginning, Ryan, about the relevant stage that depending on the, the, the trait you're trying to judge, different situations are going to be the ones that evoke that and allow that to be judged. So before we got on this, uh, actually started recording, David, we, we talked a little bit at you, Ryan and I about social media mm. and our, our use of social media or increasingly lack thereof, it sounds like. Um, yeah. But I, I think, you know, with so many people out there on these social media platforms, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, LinkedIn, whatever it may be, I'm really curious as to how the rise of social media has affected how we judge others. Can you, can you talk about that at all? Yeah, maybe just a, a little bit. But I don't think I have anything very original to say. And, and as you say, Blake, um, I've, I used to be on Twitter and I've gone off of it. That's what it was one of my... Uh, things I did when I, you know, when we all had our stay at home orders, I just went off Twitter and, and felt better. I, and what, but, but that's an interesting question. Then why did I feel better? Uh, people seem to have much shorter fuses on social media. Not real clear to me why. Um, I think when you're isolated physically from the person, you miss a lot of nuance, uh, things that, you know, are, a lot of what we do with each other, I think in daily life are sort of like little mock insults and little things that, you know, it's, they're clearly jokes, but when you have the nonverbals and you have the broader context, people don't take offense. You say the same thing in a tweet or on a Facebook post and suddenly you've, you've made an enemy for life, right? So I, I think there's that. I think we're, we're less charitable to people in the abstract than we are in person. Um, you know, when you're, when you're interacting with somebody physically in the room or even on Zoom, which actually I think Zoom is actually, I wouldn't put it in the category of social media. It's it's the best simulation of a in-person interaction I think we can we can get. Um, but when, when you're interacting through, you know, 80 characters or whatever the Twitter limit is now or the Facebook post, there just isn't, the, the nuance doesn't get communicated, the warmth of the person, the fact that you know, I think generally we're programmed to, uh, you know, genetically possibly programmed, evolutionary programmed. We people like people. You know, we're we're a social species. Um, I sometimes point out to students when we're and when we could do that. You, you look at a room with two hundred fifty people in it, all sitting there quietly and re relatively contentedly, sitting close together in a room. You know, you can't get monkeys to do that. You can't get dogs to do that. It, they, they, they they would go a little crazy. Um, but we just were comfortable with, with each other. And I think we lose that through the things that are mediated through things like Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. I forget what comedian it was, and I'm apt to attribute most comedian sayings to George Carlin, but this may not actually have been from him. But there was somebody who was saying, basically, he was talking about war. He was basically saying, well, I think before people you know, go off to war, they ought to line up first and, and go through and shake everybody's hand. And then go back to the sides and shoot each other. He was yeah. basically saying, you know, that that this would make a pretty dramatic difference in how people would feel about, you know, engaging in that kind of behavior if you actually had to meet the person. Right, right. And and Twitter's maybe the equivalent of battle, right? Right. <laughs> You've never really met the person, so you can you're 
you're less inhibited in, in uh, uh, attributing nasty things to them, you know, coming to, to judgments that this is a bad person. And of course, less inhibited in, in uh, your attacks on them as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to add anecdote, anecdotally the same story that uh, I told before we before we started recording, which is that I got off of Facebook for the most part. I still put an occasional post up every now and then, but uh, you know, went from checking it maybe three, four times a day to checking it maybe once a week, maybe mm-hmm. once every two weeks, um, and spending uh, seconds on it as opposed to hours, you know, per month. Um, and, you know, for me, it's a, it had the same effect, David, is that I just feel like um, I, I, that I like people a lot more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, mm-hmm. wow, there are really nice people everywhere and you can go out and talk to them and meet them. And even in COVID, um, even if you weren't, you know, physically talking to them, you know, in person or, or, or even if it was through a drive through or through a delivery person or something like that, it just, I don't know, I just felt much more pleasant now that I don't have to know what you said on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah. I've also reconnected with some old friends via good old zoom. Um, mm-hmm. Like uh, my oldest friend, the one I went, he, we, he and I literally went to a kindergarten together and, and he recently found our kindergarten portrait too, which was crazy. Um, you know, I've reconnected with him and his wife and we have a zoom call every Monday now. And I hadn't connected with him in years until this. So, you know, there's, there's windows that, that open as well as close under these circumstances. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in the same boat as far as, as Ryan and, and you all, you know, with, with Facebook, I I just, I, I think I saw, I think I might've spent like three minutes on it in the past 30 days recently. <laughs> so it was like, that seemed like a big victory for me. So it sounds like we're all um, enjoying a little less social media in our lives, but you know, David, this has been a great conversation. But I have one last question before we let you go. I'm curious about how personality judgment differs among cultures. Are there any significant differences in how people in other parts of the world judge each other? Yeah, well, there, there's there's a there's a party line. No, I won't say party line. There's a conventional answer, which is that um, in individualistic cultures like the U.S., Europe, and so forth, that um, we, we concentrate more on individual differences and that in uh, so-called collectivist cultures, usually we, people just point to Asia and say Asia. Um, people are, are less sensitive to individual differences and more looking at what people have in common or what the group is. I'm actually, that's a conventional answer. I, I'm actually very skeptical of that answer. Um, there was a lot of hay was made years ago by a guy named Richard Schwader, who's a cultural anthropologist who said, there aren't meant nearly as many trait words in the Hindu dictionary as there are in the English dictionary. Therefore, traits aren't important in, in Hindu-speaking cultures. And then you go like, yeah, but there's still several hundred trait words in the Hindu dictionary, just not as many as in the English dictionary. So clearly they're they're there and they're being used. So I'll, you know, I've, I've been doing cross-cultural research now for, for a while. Uh, we just... Uh, have a big database that we've gathered and are still uh, analyzing that comes from 64 countries around the world um, on every continent except Antarctica. Um, and uh, one of the things that I think is emerging from that and from some other cross-cultural studies by people like uh, Yuri Alec, a very 
very smart uh, Estonian cross-cultural psychologist, is that I think there's a counterintuitive finding emerging from cross-cultural psychology, which is cultural differences are smaller than we thought they'd be. That I think we went into it expecting that there would be these dramatic differences. You know, we're, we're weird cultures, so we're, we're, we're so, which is this term that's used, Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. Countries like the US, you know, England, that most of the European countries and so forth are actually unusual in the world and yet that's where research is done. And the idea was, well, as soon as we go outside there, it's gonna be so different. We're just not finding that. We're, or, or, for example, we, we compared this, our RSQ, our situ, measure of situational experience around the world in 64 different countries. And we just did, uh, well, conceptually simple, uh, operationally kind of complicated analysis to see in one analysis, you take everybody within a country and you compare the situational experience of that person with everybody else within the same country. Okay. In, in this separate analysis, you take each person in the whole sample and compare them, their situational experience with that of people in all of the other countries of the world. Okay. And the answer is which of those similarities is going to be larger? Well, it turns out that the within country similarity is larger than the between country similarity, but barely and only reaches statistical significance because we have about 16,000 people in our sample. If we didn't have a huge sample, we wouldn't even found the difference. So I think one of the findings emerging from cross-cultural psychology is we're more different around the world than we thought. And if we're going to look for big differences in how people are judged around the world, my I'll go out on a limb and say, I'm going to guess we're not going to find very many. And, and fewer than we presumed going in. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, I think I also mentioned before we got on the recording here that um, I was on a call with a group from Singapore last night, and we were actually, they were specifically going over data that we have in Asian economies, Hong Kong, mm. China, Japan, Singapore, Malaysia, places, Taiwan, uh, Korea, things like that. And um, that was actually the kind of similar finding there too. And what was interesting is that all of these, all of our data were normed and things like that. So when we compared it to, we compared these countries just to global norm, it's like, well, they don't really look very different from our global norm either. It's like, yeah, no, not really. <laughs> they look pretty yeah. similar. Uh, the structure of our assessments shows up uh, identically in, um, I don't know, 47 plus languages. We get the exact same structure. Um, yeah. and it just, I think you're right. It, it's all sort of pointing to this picture of the, the all the one outlier. And I'm, I'm curious what, what you've seen in your data, David is for us is, is often Japan for whatever reason we see that Japan is, uh, tends to have mean scores that are just lower on a lot of our assessments, like a big five kind mm. of assessment. They just tend to have lower scores kind of across the board. Um, and, uh, we're not exactly sure what the deal is because we don't see it with China. We don't see it with Korea. We don't, it's mm. only Japan. And, and, uh, and at first I thought, well, our translations are maybe not so good, but we've, <laughs> we've triple checked that and yeah. there's just no translation issue. It just, and, and I don't know if you've seen similar kinds of things or not. You know, I have to say that, that we've kind of had the reverse that Japan ends up looking an awful lot like the U S in our data. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So you know, the, the, the person, uh, the person I was talking to about this last night, uh, she lives in China, but she does lots of work in Japan. And, um, I I'm betting you have a lot of young people in your samples. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're, they're college age. Yeah. And that's one of the things that she was saying was that, um, 
that in Japan, she was saying that she expects that this difference that we see will dissipate as the younger group moves into Uh, the the more uh, professional roles, because she said that that's sort of this change that's been going on over the last maybe five years, she said in Japan, where that sort of self-effacing, I know there's psychological research on this kind of self-effacing kind of thing. She was saying that that's um, sort of moving away, particularly among the younger generation. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I bet that is the, the difference. I'm sure you have a much larger age range in your sample than what we have in ours, for sure. Yeah, we, well, in fact, we we actually just as a little silent, we we um, we actually have a study that uh, Gwen Gardner just uh, published in PLOS One. It's, it's this online journal called Public Library of Science. It's open access on happiness around the world. And we one of the things we did in there was there's two measures of happiness in our study. One is the one that was invented by Sonia Lubomirsky, which is sort of based in Western American culture. And the other was called the interdependent happiness scale, and it was developed by psychologists in Japan. And the idea was that happiness is, has a different meaning in Japan than it does in the U.S. or in Western cultures. That in Japan you care about the happiness of the people around you as much as you, as as your own, whereas in the U.S. it's much more you know it's a, it's a me thing. You know, am I happy? Um, so we used both measures around the world and looked at among other things their structure and predictability and stuff. We discovered that, in fact, even though the other measure was developed in Japan, the two measures look almost identical in Japan. Oh, that's interesting. But but where you see a difference between the two is uh, actually in Africa. Huh. So, you know, so cultural differences don't map on the sometimes our, our, our maps. And, and we've actually found that if you do the individualistic collectivist type thing or these dichotomies, uh-huh. That I really do think Africa is getting left out. That it doesn't seem to be either one. Uh, that that there's something else going on in Africa. I don't think we had good enough or wide ranging data to put our fingers on what it is. But I do think Africa, if there's East and West, I think Africa needs to be um, designated as a third mm. thing, um, and you know deserves to be studied in its own right. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, I'd be curious to learn more about that. So, David, if you do any more um, digging around over in that in that area, we would love to have you back on to discuss that. So, yeah, keep yeah. keep us updated if, if if you find anything or if you learn anything more there. Um, so, David, thank you for coming on and joining us. This is a really great conversation. It's a topic that. Uh, we've been talking about at Hogan for a long time, but really wanted to bring in an, an outside expert on this subject to discuss it. So thank you so much for, for joining us on this, on this podcast. And we really enjoyed this conversation. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So that does it for episode 26 of the science of personality podcast. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. This has been the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.